you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4. We're continuing in our series on the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 31. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. This is talking about Jesus here. It says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 31 says, then he went down to Capernaum. Don't miss that word then. For those of you that are not in the Friday morning study, I, I, I always tell them to be on the lookout for words like this. That word then is a hinge. It's highlighting what went before and what is following after. And, and we, we know what went before because I preached on it a few weeks ago. Um, Jesus is preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown, and the people knew him there. You, you remember we talked about the fact that, that Nazareth was a small town. Some commentators say there wasn't any more than 400 people that lived there. I can find commentators that say there was as little as only 100 people in that small town. And so everybody knew everybody. I'm from a small town. I can tell you that is the case. Everybody knows everybody's business in a small town. And so people knew Jesus. They, they, they knew that he was the son of Joseph. They knew that he was a carpenter. They had watched him grow up and they were familiar with Jesus. I, I'm telling you, familiarity is dangerous sometimes. Sometimes we become so familiar with Jesus that it hinders us and, and, and we lose uh, we lose the impact of who he is. And they were familiar with Jesus and it hindered them from being able to believe he was who he was claiming to be. And as a result, scripture says that they were offended with his words. What words might you, might you ask? It was, it was that he went into that synagogue and, and he was handed the scroll and he opened it up to Isaiah 61. And, and, and Isaiah 61, as you know, it says that I have been anointed to preach good news. Good news to the poor, to bind up the broken heart, to, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then Jesus says... <laughs> And this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This was Jesus who they watched grow up, and now he's claiming to be the Messiah. And the Bible says that they became offended at his words. In fact, those who heard, scripture says, were filled with wrath. And remember, we talked about how they, they, they ran him out of, of the village and they took him to an area just with a cliff and they were going to push him over the cliff. But the Bible says that he turned and walked right through the crowd, unaffected by them. 
but they rejected Jesus. And the then that we read just a few minutes ago is connected to that. Then he left Nazareth and he went on to Capernaum. And Capernaum, the people received him there. In fact, uh, it, it, during Jesus's ministry, that was the area where he spent the most amount of time was, was in Capernaum. It was where he did the most miracles. Most of the recorded miracles of Jesus were, were done in, in Capernaum. It eventually would be the headquarters of his ministry. And later in scripture, we will see that he refers to Capernaum as his own city. Notice that verse 31 says he went down to Capernaum. Capernaum was about 16 miles away from Nazareth. And, and, and Nazareth sat about 1,145 feet above sea level. Uh, Capernaum, however, was 686 feet below sea level. So that's why it says he went down to Capernaum. Capernaum was a lakeside town. I wish we had brought pictures tonight. We, we have pictures uh, in Capernaum. Capernaum is on, it's a lakeside little village or town, and it, it borders the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so uh, Capernaum is where Jesus spent a lot of his time. And that's where our story opens tonight with Jesus in Capernaum doing what he does best, preaching the gospel. I don't want you to miss that. Verse 31 says he was teaching them. Uh, here's what I really don't want you to miss tonight. Jesus performed a ton of miracles, a ton of signs and wonders, but his emphasis was always on preaching and teaching. So often uh, we get focused on his miracles and, and his signs and wonders and we chase after those things. And, but I want you to know that Jesus himself in verse 43 says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. If you underline your in your Bible, that would be a good thing to underline because that is why I was sent. The reason Jesus came, what he, the reason he says he was sent was to preach the good news. Preaching, not signs and wonders. Those things follow those who believe. But what drove his ministry was preaching the good news. Verse 31 says he was teaching them. That, that phrase teaching is in the present tense. It means he was continually, it was, it was his habit, he was continually preaching them. It was his lifestyle to preach and to teach wherever he went. Everything became a pulpit for him. If I'm not careful, everywhere I go becomes a pulpit uh, to me. Dave and I were at uh, Outback yesterday after, after church for lunch, and there were these ladies standing there, and, and they asked me if I was Real Talk Kim, and it struck up a conversation, and I said, no, but I preach like her, and, and, and I began to talk with them, and I thought, Rhea, be careful. Every place I go, I can make a pulpit. Jesus did that. Everywhere he when he looked for an opportunity to preach and to teach. This weekend I taught on, on, on John chapter 6 where Jesus was feeding the 5,000. Does everybody know that story? That, that story, you'll recall, picks up after Jesus had, had done miracles and he was healing a bunch of sick people and everybody was hearing about it because everybody likes signs and wonders. Everybody likes miracles. And in John chapter 6, Jesus had just performed some major miracles and a huge crowd of people were now gathering to follow him because everybody wanted to see a miracle. 
And so he, he has this crowd of people, 5,000 scripture says, but we know there was more than that because it didn't include the women and the children. So there were probably double or, or more people that were there. And they were, they were listening as Jesus taught. And at one point after he taught for so long, he looked at one of his disciples and he said, Can we, we need to feed them. And the disciples said, even a year's wages, we couldn't pay for food for them. And, and Jesus sees a little boy with a lunch. You know the story, five loaves and two fishes. He takes those five loaves, those two fishes, and he multiplies them and he feeds everybody. And he has 12 baskets of leftovers that are picked up. That was a miracle. It was a pretty wild miracle, was it not? And so people saw that. And the Bible says that they wanted to make him king. They liked it. They liked that he was doing all those hotsy-totsy miracles. But the Bible says that Jesus then withdrew. He withdrew from that crowd. And the next day we see him, the next story that picks up, he's across the, the Sea of Galilee, and, and he's again, uh, you know, teaching. And the crowds go to where he had been because, you know, they want to see another miracle. And they can't find him, so they track him down. They find he's on the other side of the sea. He, they go over to hear him, and they basically say, Jesus, we'd like to see another miracle. And Jesus replies this way, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous sign. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. This weekend, I taught about the scripture in John that says, this is eternal life, that you know me, that you know me. Here's how you find life. Here's the source of life for you when you know Jesus. And as you sit with him, and that word know we talked about last week is a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. It means here's how you find life. Not in a drug, not in a bottle of alcohol, not in a better husband or a better wife, not, not in more money, not in a bigger house or a nicer car, not in success, not, not in anything but Jesus. This is eternal life, that you know me, that you're intimate with me, that you're connected with me. And now they're coming to him after seeing him do the, the sign and wonder, and they want another sign and wonder. And Jesus said, don't seek more food from me. Don't seek another miraculous sign from me. Here's what I want you to speak, seek. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that I can give you. The, the, new pa the Passion Translation says, unite your heart to me and believe and you will experience eternal life. Jesus was saying, you, you don't need another miracle. You, I don't want you. You see, fans chase miracles. Fans want me to perform. Fans are fair weather and they leave me when I don't perform. But I want you to seek me. I want you to unite your heart with me and believe so that you can experience the real miracle of life, of eternal life, of fulfillment that you get from being in connection with me, not my signs and wonders. And the Bible says that at that point, everybody deserted him. And not just everybody deserted him, all his followers even. And he looked at his disciples and he said, do you want to go too? And I think it was Peter who says, where, where would we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. You're the only one that can give us life. I don't care if you ever do another miracle. Here's what I know about you. My life is found in connection with you. And at that point, here's what I love. 
Jesus did not chase those people down that left, the 5,000 plus people. He didn't say, you know, please come back because if you go back, I'll change my message and I'll make it sound better so that you stay, just stay with me. I love that Jesus didn't do that because here's what, I, here's what I'm learning. <laughs> Look at this room. Jesus was not concerned about numbers. Jesus was concerned with commitment, with their level of commitment. Numbers come with signs and wonders. Everybody flocks to that. <laughs> numbers does not come with good, solid, biblical preaching. Because we want fun. We want excitement. We want thrill. We want, you know, make me feel good. Give me, yeah. So Jesus said, here is my purpose. The reason I'm sent is to preach the good news. The good news. Verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And I love that. That word astonished means to be struck with amazement, to be amazed, to, to expel by a blow, uh, to cast off by a blow, to, to strike with panic. Or to shock. It's the same word. Do you know the story where Jesus is 12 years old? This story always tickles my heart. He's 12 years old, and, and, and his parents went to, I think, Jerusalem, am I right, for the feast of Passover, I think. Don't quote me with that on that. But they, they went to Jerusalem for something, I think the feast of Passover, and, and, and Jesus is 12 years old. <laughs> and they leave Jerusalem, mom and dad, obviously was not a mother of seven like I was because we are constantly doing head counts, but they leave Jerusalem and they travel a whole day's journey, a whole day. And they're like, anybody see Jesus? Okay, moms, are you with me? Like, can you just like feel the panic even now, just knowing this, telling me telling you this story and you already know it, but like you feel the sick in your stomach? Like, where is Jesus? Why didn't somebody keep tabs on him? And so they go back a whole day's journey, and Scripture says that three days later, three days, I never saw that before, three, after three days they find him. Moms, I'm sorry, dads, you might be able to blow this off, but mamas, can you just like, <gasps> can you imagine? And the Bible says that they saw him in the synagogue with the rabbis, and he, they were astonished. That's the word. They, it uses this same word. So it doesn't mean, wow, that's great. Do you know what it means? Shock. I, I'm shocked. I'm filled with panic because where have you been, Jesus? Can you just, mobs, can you imagine? Where have you been? Why weren't you with us? That's the word, astonished. They were astonished. And so when they're listening to him preach, we read that word astonished and we think it's a wow word. We think that they're so impressed. It means they were blown away and they were struck with panic. Luke 4, the word is an imperfect tense and it means that they were astonished over and over and over again. They kept, they kept being astonished over and over and over. He, they, he would say something and it would stun them. Then they, they, he'd say something else and it would strike them again with panic. They would he'd say something else and it shocked them. And, and it was over. The tense that's used means it was done over and over and over as he preached. 
They were astonished. They were stunned by his word. The, the, the phrase means they were, their mouths were wide open with amazement. But I, I wonder also if they were struck with panic as he taught. Did his teaching touch something in them that forced them to examine their lives and as a result shocked them and struck them with panic. I believe that's what it means. Uh, uh, one of the commentators I read said, it's interesting to note that our English word, astonish, is, to, is derived from the Latin word, which means to strike with thunder. What, an ama what a picture of the amazing effect of Jesus' radical message, striking his, his hearers like thunder. Now, how many of you know thunder and lightning you can feel when you're struck with that? Jesus' words pierced in such a way that people felt the impact of them. They had never heard anyone teach like him. His word was with authority, it says. Notice it was his word. His message was with authority. Luke stresses his message because the message, his message was different than all the rest. I think it, in Mark, it says that they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes. So his message was different than the scribes and the other rabbis' messages because they were used to hearing the teaching of the scribes and the rabbis in that day. In Judaism, commentators tell us that when rabbis or scribes taught, they spent their entire time quoting other rabbis. Nothing was original because, or because they had heard from God. They simply would quote other rabbis. Many rabbis are recorded in the Talmud saying that, that they never taught anything that they had not heard from other teachers. That is not the way Jesus taught. Kenneth Riken says, all of their teachers spoke with delegated authority when they taught the Bible. They spent much of their time quoting from other teachers. Their theology was secondhand. Jesus' theology was not. He was the living word, quoting the written word. He was the author of the word he spoke. And while that's true, I also want you to remember that Jesus was a man in every way that you and I are. And, and so if what he was, if his power and his authority came from the fact that he was God incarnate, that's not fair. Because he is in every way a man like you and I are. So that means that I should be able to preach with authority and with power as well. So what was the secret? Where do you think Jesus got his power and his authority? Holy Spirit, yes, surrender to the Holy Spirit. But, but I, I heard it. Where? He was spending time with the Father. We see him constantly pulling aside to be with the Father. We see that over and over and over again. We see his obedience. With obedience comes authority. With communion comes authority. He preached directly from the text, not fine-sounding words. Can I tell you, I prayed that tonight. Let my message be uh, not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. That's directly out of Scripture. There's a Scripture that says that. And Jesus' words were not wise and persuasive words. They were not words that tickled their, the, his hearers' ears. He had a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power when he preached, and people could tell the difference. People could tell the difference. People were struck by amazement, hit by a blow, by the blow of conviction, penetrated by the thunderbolts of his word. 
Amy Carmichael has, has an, remember she was a mission, a great missionary, and she has a quote that I love. She says, if you have never been hurt by a word from God, it's probable that you've never heard God speak. If you have never been hurt by a word from God, it is probable that you have never heard God speak. But here's what we do. We run from power, powerful preaching. We run from convicting preaching. We want a feel-good message that leaves us pumped up. And Amy Carmichael said herself, if you have never been hurt by a word of God, if you've never received a blow from a word of God, it's probable that you've never heard God speak. The rabbis and the scribes that were in the synagogue at that time were just saying what somebody else had said. And Jesus brought a word with authority and with power because he had spent time with the Father. Because he had applied that word to his life and he was living it out. And so it came with power and with authority. I'm concerned about churches where pastors, yes, the, the, don't get me wrong, commentators are wonderful. Commentaries are great tools and resources to use. But here's what I see. Let me go on YouTube and just quote what's some other preacher is saying we actually listen to podcasts and we listen to videos and then we we talk to people like this is the revelation that the Lord gave to me no you heard that on a podcast you didn't hear it because you sat with the Lord and let him speak to you this morning the Lord woke me up early and I went down to the fireplace and I I, I was gonna I wanted to get into my message because I had traveled all weekend and I didn't have as much time in this message as I wanted and and so I went to to immediately open up my books to start studying and the Lord said to me, No, you spend time in prayer. And so I, I spent time in prayer and, and then finally I was I felt the release to go back to my study and I went back to my study and I opened my books and the Lord said, Shut that computer down. And just sit with my word. And I'm like, Lord, ain't nobody got time for that today. I've got a few hours to get ready for Bible study tonight. And I just felt like this grief, this grief come over me. And I said, fine. And I turned off my computer and I opened up my Bible to this passage. And I, was not, I did not read five minutes before I saw what I'm going to show you tonight. And it, 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 it shook me to the core. I went up to Dave. I'm like, Dave, did you know this? He said, no. I had lunch with Leslie. I said, Leslie, did you know this? She said, no, but that's such a good word. I'm, I'm telling you, that was not because I read it in a commentary. It wasn't because somebody else told me or I heard somebody else preach it. It was because I sat with the Lord until I heard from the Lord. And that is what's going to change lives. And that's why you, the United States of America is not being transformed. Because all we're doing is secondhand theolo theology that we've heard from somebody else. And we're not tearing before the Lord. We're not spending time in communion with him. And this world is not going to be transformed. I, I just read... Who was it? We, we just were introduced to somebody this weekend. He, he's from England, and he's now living in Nigeria. And he said that he, he, he had a, a revelation from the Lord. He had heard from the Lord. How did he hear from him? A, a dream. And the Lord told him that, that we have nine years left in the United States for a turning, for a repentance. And if true repentance doesn't happen within those next eight years, that something dramatic is going to hit the United States. 
And he was so convincing. Like some people send me stuff and I'm like, they're freak. It just that guy is way, 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 way out in left base but, or left field. But, but this guy was so believable. I sent it to Leslie. She said, Rhea. She said, I was up all night listening to, to his messages. It was a powerful word. And, and I'm telling you. That this, we have got to get serious in the United States if we're going to see some change. Do you know how much corruption is taking place in this country? Do you have any idea the corruption that is taking place in this country? And, and it is not going to change until the church takes their rightful place and begins to rise up and say, the truckers should not have to be the ones in Canada making the change. It should be the church. The church should be rising up and saying, no, 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 not on my watch. This is not going to happen. We've got to fight, we've got to, to begin to rise up and that starts first and foremost with us being in this word and hearing from God. I sat before God this morning and I said, Lord, whatever's coming, I need you to prepare me. I, I need you to prepare me. Tell me what to do. Let me know ahead of time. You do nothing without your servants, the prophets, knowing what you're doing. Then I'm asking you to show me. I'm asking you to tell me. And we have got to get to the place, church, where we begin to seek God for that. I have no idea why I got off on all of that, but let's look. He taught as one with authority. Means with command. Verse 33, now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit. This is what he showed me this morning. Who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Look at that wording. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Luke doesn't want us to miss that this man with the demon was in attendance in the synagogue, in the place where the word of God was preached. And, and I want to know what the demon-possessed man was doing there. Why would he want to be there in a place of God's presence? It might surprise you that there is demon possession and demon oppression in the church. Do you know what I believe? I believe that this man had a facade of spirituality. But clearly, he was under the influence of darkness. Here's what bothers me so much. <laughs> How long was he going to the synagogue unnoticed? Well, one word from Jesus, and that demon began to manifest in him. Why didn't it manifest before? Why? There was no power or authority. Remember the sons of Sceva? Paul, I, I know. Jesus, I, know, I have no idea who you are. And they jumped on him. They recognize authority. They recognize power. And that demon began to manifest the second Jesus stood up to teach. I wonder how long that man had been in the synagogue and gone unnoticed. Because the message that was being preached by those rabbis and those scribes was not a threat to the enemy's kingdom, so there was no manifestation. A man with a demon in a house of worship, in a place where the word of God was taught. And the people were not, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, but they weren't astonished that there was a man manifesting a demon in their midst. Ray Orton agrees, and he says, what on earth was a demon-possessed man doing there of all places? Moreover, the people weren't alarmed by his presence. What amazed them was the teaching of Jesus. I suppose they had gotten used to the poor man. Their reading of the Bible was so covered over with layers of tradition that the power was suppressed. 
Their thinking had become unclear, their alertness dulled. Over time, they had probably made allowances for this man and his weirdness. They had to because they had no power to help them. But the presence and the authority of Jesus elicited a response from the demon in this man. It provoked the demon in this man. A number of years ago, we were still at Weatherstone Church, and, and I, had preached, uh, I had preached a message that night, and the church had eventually en- emptied out, and there was one woman sitting in a chair on, the en- on a pew on the end, like in the second row. And everybody had left. It was just Leslie and I and the team still there. And I thought, oh, she's waiting for prayer. And so I went down the row to go talk to her and when I got just within about this distance of her she went like this and I knew immediately what it was I knew that the demon in her recognized the authority that I was carrying and it shrank back she did not want me to come near her and it was, it was clearly a, a, a demonic manifestation don't kid yourself there is demon possession even within the church, definitely demon oppression within the church. The Bible says that this man had an unclean spirit. That word who had, it means to have, to hold on to, but here's what really bothers me, to have possession of the mind, to have possession of the mind. Uh, It says he had an unclean spirit. That word unclean means impure. It means not cleansed. Here's, Here's what it means unclean in thought and life. In a moral sense, it refers to that which is unclean in thought, word, and deed. One commentator says it can uh, describe a state of moral impurity, especially sexual sin. I I believe with all of my heart, uh, Dave and I work with men and women who are are struggling with sexual addiction, with sexual sin, and and I will stand on this till I am blue in the face. Uh, we 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 take them so far in groups, uh, in 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 teaching and and discussion, and and we talk to them. We work through trauma with them. But there comes a time in each of their lives that that I say to Dave, you've got to get your hands on them, and you've got to you've got to go after the opening that they opened up. To to the devil because there are guys that we can only take so far they have a whole lot of head knowledge and they're still struggling and it's because don't give place to the devil when they opened up their 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 heart to that impure uh, unclean garbage they, they that provided an opening for for them to held possession in the mind the demon held possession in the mind are you with me an unclean spirit got a hold of them and so that we can only take them so far if they're not open to me getting their hands on, on them or Dave or someone praying over them, that door has to get closed to the unclean spirit that they've opened themselves up to. Here's what I saw this morning after the Lord said, I want you to just sit with the word. I wish I could put this up on the, the screen for you, but because I just got it today, I'm, I wasn't able to do that as I was reading through that passage, and I read unclean demon, and I had never looked up the word demon because I know what a demon is. And I just felt like the Lord kept saying, look up the word demon. So I went to the Strong's Concordance, and I I looked up the word demon, and here's what it said. Demons are the spiritual agents acting in all idolatry. The idol itself is nothing. But every idol has a demon associated with it who induces idolatry with its worship and sacrifices. Listen to that again. 
The idol itself is nothing, but every idol, every idol has a demon associated with it who induces idolatry. Now remember, the man who had, it had possession of the mind. We, we cannot continue to be unaware here. What is an idol? An idol is a person or a thing that's loved more than God, that's feared more than God, that's sought after and treasured more than God. It's anything or anyone that rivals one's absolute devotion to God. It's the thing you bow down to other than God. Now, that could be the approval of others. An idol is not what you see in the pagan culture where it's a, it's a, it's a, a statue or something carved out of wood. We're not talking that kind of idol. They're idols of the heart. How many of you know that? And an idol can be the, the approval of others, it can be a person, it could be a house, it could be success, it could be pornography or sex, it could be point, uh, sports, it could be a hobby, it could be exercise, it could be being physically fit, it can be your looks or your body image, it could be fear, it can be anxiety, anything that you bow down to and give more power in your life, more devotion, more affection than God himself. I'm telling you, there are some of you that have idols in your thinking process because you give so much power and so much attention and so much devotion to what Susie down the street did to you. You rehearse it all the time. That thing has become an idol to you. It's gained possession of your mind, and it is now an opportunity to get a demon attached to it. Let me read the definition again, straight out of the strong concordance. The idol itself is nothing, but every idol has a demon associated with it who induces idolatry. It was profound to me, so profound that when we talked about uh, an unclean spirit that I sat down today and I began to look up all the spirits that were mentioned in the Bible, all references to the demons in the Bible, the kind of demons. I'm undone. I'm going to spend the week I come back just going over that so that you can see just straight down through the word of God, how we open ourselves up to, to demonic oppression and possession. You say, Rhea, I don't believe this stuff. I don't care. It's in the word of God. It is in the word of God. And what's so interesting to me is, do you understand that there's only, I think it's only, don't quote me, but I think only four times outside the gospels that a demon is mentioned. Uh, let me find the, the, the exact amount because I don't want to misquote it. But I think it's only outside of the Gospels, there are only four references to demon possession in the whole Bible. Two in the Old Testament and two in the book of Acts. However, in the Gospels, for example, Luke mentions demon possession 23 times. So what does that tell you? Who are the Gospels about? Jesus shows up and the enemy is terrified. He's terrified because now the one who has the power and the authority to deal with them, that's why they have to start manifesting because nobody else was a threat to them before Jesus came on the scene. That's powerful stuff, church, because the Bible says greater is he that's in us than he that's in this world. And I'm telling you that we have nothing to fear there and the enemy should be trembling. What's the saying? When she wakes up and puts her feet on the ground, the enemy says, oh, no, she's awake. That's how we should be living our life, that the enemy's like, oh, no, she's awake. Because greater is he that's in us 
than he that's in this world. But we have to get, we have to get wise. And so I'm telling you, there is something to this, and I am going to spend that whole next time we're together going over it. Remember, an idol is something you're devoted to. An idol is something you bow down to. An idol is something that's all your worship other than God. And we think of an idol as things like our children or, you know, all these good things. Today, as I sat with all of the demonic manifestations, a spirit of heaviness, for example, a spirit of heaviness, it's profound. I was everything I could do not to teach it tonight. But that those things, the idol induces us, the, the, the demon induces us to worship that thing. How many of you have had a thought pattern that you could not get free from? It like tormented you. It harassed you. It was kept you awake at night. You, you rehashed it and rehearsed it. I'm telling you, the demon induces idolatry. Your worship, your devotion, your, your, your bowing down to that thing. And you see, when we're not unaware and we recognize it for what it is, we can take the authority that needs to be taken against it and forbid it and rebuke it from operating. But here's what we do. We're just led around like, you know, leave me wherever you want to take me. I mean, seriously, it's what we do. It's why, oh, I won't say it. But you wonder why people are in bad shape, seeking treatment and help every place but the church. The relief is in Jesus himself and in the power of God in our life. So I won't go there, but that's where I'm going to go when we come back in two weeks. Uh, verse 33 and 34, he cried out in a loud voice saying, leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? He cried out in a loud voice, that word loud voice, it's two words, mega, megas, and phone. It's where we get our word megaphone. The demon manifest interrupted Jesus' teaching with a loud voice. It was provoked by Jesus' teaching. And I'm just telling you that the enemy's goal is always to, for, to keep the word of God from going forth in power. And that's what happened. Jesus was preaching. The enemy manifested uh, and, it, and, and interrupted all of Jesus' teaching. And, and so... Um, now we're going to see a confrontation with evil. And I don't want you to miss the fact that this is Jesus' first miracle that's recorded in the book of Luke. And it was a confrontation with evil. The Bible says in 1 John 3 that this is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And so he says, leave us alone, Jesus. And, and it's, a, it's an expression of indignation, and it means, let it be, go away. And Grant Osborne says the demons want nothing to do with Jesus. They know they can't defeat him. They just want him to leave him alone. And isn't that always the cry of Satan in our life? Let us alone. Don't challenge us. Don't tell me this is a sin. Don't point out this wrongdoing. Let us alone. We're quite happy doing our thing. Just let me be, Jesus. Just let me be. Why bother us? What are we to do with you, he says? What business do we have with each other? I read a commentary that said this week, unresisted sin will always resist the presence of Jesus. Unresisted sin will always resist the presence of Jesus. The demon said, did you come to destroy us? The demon knows, all demons know, that Jesus has ultimate power and authority over the spirit realm. They know the time is coming when they will be destroyed for good. 
And other passages say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? Have you come to torment us before the time? Before what time? They knew their time was limited. And Jesus, and this demon is like, could this be the time? Let us alone. What do we have to do with you? Notice they didn't say, let us alone. You don't have any power over us. They didn't say that because they knew Jesus had power over them. He said, did you come to destroy us? Here's what I, I want to just end with. That word destroy means to destroy utterly, but hear this, but not to cause to cease to exist. To destroy utterly, but not to cause to cease to exist. The word means the loss of well-being. The, the Bible promises everlasting life to those who believe. But what does John 3.16 says? That, that you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The word perish is this word. It means uh, to de destroy utterly, but not to cease to exist. And, and that bothers me because there are some people that say when you die, if you don't know Jesus, you just cease to exist. Mm -mm. You perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. The word perish there is to utterly destroy but not cease to exist. It means utter ruin and eternal uselessness but not a, a cessation of existence. I don't know you didn't get that. Because I'm just here to tell you if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the day will come when you will perish and not have eternal life. But you don't just close your eyes and go to sleep. It means you'll have eternal uselessness, and it means you'll be utterly destroyed. But the word itself means that you will not cease to exist. My Bible says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's eternal torment. He says, I know who you are. What tickles me is here all these people are sitting with Jesus in the synagogue and they don't recognize him, all these religious leaders. The people from Nazareth didn't want to recognize him for who he is. But here is a demon and he has no problem recognizing. I know who you are. You are the son of God. I, I got this one. And I, I just want to say, you know, I, I want to just say when he manifested and said that, why didn't all these religious leaders say, oh, my goodness, we need to bow down. That's the son of God. They even doubt, they still doubt it. And the Bible says, I think it's in um, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. See, belief, you might believe he's Jesus. You might believe he's God incarnate, but even the demons in hell believe that. It's not about belief that way. He says, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Here's the rest of that verse. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You know the scripture that I always quote, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does, and the word does there is um, present tense, it means it's their habit, their lifestyle, he who does the will of the Father. And then he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, driven out demons in your name, and done miracles in your name? And I will declare to them publicly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who act wish wickedly, disregarding my commands. So belief without obeying his commands and having an intimate relationship with him is dead. 
That's why he says, you do well to believe that God is one. Even the demons believe that. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless, is dead? He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One, the Son of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet, come out of him. The demon threw him out of their midst and came out of him and did not hurt him. Don't miss the power and the authority of Jesus. He says, come out. He commands the demon, and the demon obeys. So we see Jesus' authority goes far beyond his teaching. He disarms and overpowers hell. And that same power lives within us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in this world. But we have to live aware of both realms. We live in the natural realm, but we've got to be aware of the spirit realm, and we have to operate this in this life aware of that realm. Otherwise, we're unaware of the enemy's schemes. So he rebukes him. He comes out. This guy wasn't even hurt, and everybody starts talking. They're super impressed with Jesus and what he did. So you might say, well, Rhea, how uh, did this guy get demon-possessed? Mark Driscoll says, the Bible doesn't generally use the word demon-possession. It uses the word demonized. That can be internally influenced, externally oppressed, completely controlled. It has a wide range of usage and meaning. But the question is, how does it happen? In Luke 11, there's a scripture that talks about it likens our, our, our body or our lives to a house. And it says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And on its return, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and dwell there. And the final plight of that man is worse than the first. This is what I'm going to teach on in two, in two weeks. Picture your life like a body, your, your body as a house. And, and what would happen if I left all the doors? One of the things Dave does for me at night before we go to bed is he'll go through the house and he'll check all the doors. And then he'll say to me, Rhea, all the doors are locked because he knows it makes me feel safe. But what would happen if he didn't do that and we left our garage door open, the, the door leading into our house from the garage wide open and unlocked? What if we opened our front door and we opened all the windows and took the screens out? What would happen? It would just be an invitation to thieves, wouldn't it? Mark Driscoll says, and what would happen if you invited all the wrong people to come into your house when that happened? Thieves would come and steal from me. Intruders would come uninvited and they would torment me and probably destroy my house in the process. And our spirit life is like that. Our, we are spirit beings and we live in a body, a house, if you will. And when we leave the doors and the windows of our house wide open through sin and disobedience, the enemy sneaks in uninvited and he wreaks havoc and, dis and, and steals from us robs us blind, destroys our house. That's why the Bible says don't give place to the enemy. Don't give him an occasion to act. Don't let him come in and steal from you. This week I, I called my son because I kept hearing the word squatter as I was working on this sermon. And so I called my son, who's a police officer in Minnesota, and I said, Bobby, tell me uh, what squatters are. He said, oh, Mom, don't even get me started on squatters. He said, they are nearly impossible to deal with. I'm like, 
you're the law, Ty. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It is nearly impossible to deal with the squatter. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, they go into places where they have no mortgage, no lease. They're uninvited. They're intruders. And they, they set up home. They, they set up, you know, they're, they're going to live there and uninvited. And it's not their property. And he said, and they move in and they just start living there. And he said, and then we find out about it. The owner will, of the property will complain. They'll call the police. And we have no jurisdiction because it takes a court order. And he says, and they get to live there for 30 days till we get a court order. And even when we flash the court order in front of them, he said, Mom, it's impossible. He said, they fight us. They, 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 they make a, a big stink about things and he said and they have just wreaked the absolute dis destruction on the property he said they destroy it and he said it's nearly impossible to get a squatter out and and so I just was like I was chewing on that because I looked up the word squatter and it says a person who settles in or occupies a piece of property with no legal claim on the property see some of you already got that they're unauthorized tenants Tyler says, that's the word he used, an unauthorized tenant. Do you understand that you belong to God? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you belong to God. But would you let doors and windows of your house, and remember the scripture I read you talks about a house being swept clean, remember that? We are referred to as a house. If we let the windows and the doors of our house wide open for the enemy, and we do that through disobedience, through unrepentant sin, you say, well, Riga, I'm covered with the blood of Jesus and, and, and grace. It's all about grace. <laughs> yep. And you'll still go to heaven with your windows wide open and your doors swinging open, but you'll be miserable. Because a squatter will come. An uninvited tenant will come because he doesn't have a legal right to you. You belong to Christ. But you see, when you let down your guard and you swing wide your window, he can gain entrance uninvited. And he can gain legal entrance at that point. or Not legal, but he can come in and, and gain territory in your life. And it's going to take court order, Tyler says, to get him out of there. What's the court order? The word of God, faith, <laughs> the, the Bible says, that, oh, Lord help me, that faith is your title deed. It's your court order. It says, this belongs to me. I, I own this. This is my right. This is what belongs to me. And, and, and so when the enemy comes in uninvited, you, and you recognize it. See, most people don't even recognize it. But to get him out, you have to get the court order out, the word of God, and say, mm, you have no right. You have no right to move in on my children's lives. You have no right to move in on my thinking process. You have no right to bring a spirit of heaviness into my life. You have no right to bring an unclean spirit. I repent of ever opening up the door to an unclean spirit. And I'm repenting of it right now. I'm taking back legal rights, squatter. Get out of my life. I'm calling the authorities, and we do that through repentance. Do you understand that? That's what I'm going to talk to you about in two weeks. So that's just a, a little taste. But I'm telling you, signs you have squatters in your life. I was asking the Lord about this. Tormenting and harassing thoughts. Negative thoughts, accusatory thoughts, self-hatred, anxiety, overwhelming fear, suicidal thoughts, reckless, destructive behavior, cutting, 
sexual addiction, impure thoughts and actions, rage, hatred. Pretty sure you have a squatter if you have any of those. Critical, judgmental, gossip, those are all openings. Your windows and doors are open. How do we uh, close the doors and windows? Through keeping short accounts, through repentance and confession, and inviting the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, even a house that's been swept clean of demons. This is why I'm always careful. People, you know, are always like, can you pray for this person to be delivered? And I can pray for them to be delivered and the enemy can leave, but if they don't do what they need to do after I leave, that house has been swept clean. And then they go right back into the same behavior that they had been doing. Guess what's going to happen? He's going to get seven of his buddies and come back. And then the condition is going to be worse off than ever. When Leslie and I pray for somebody for deliverance, I always, I'm as firm as I can be and say, you know what, we're going to do this for you. And he's going to go. But you have some responsibility then. And here's what that's going to look like. You need to close up those doors and windows. And so um, it, it's serious business, I'm telling you. That realm is real. Uh, I want to end with one quote from Bill Johnson. I was looking at the difference between power and authority, and Bill has a great quote. He says, Jesus came from heaven to earth having been commissioned by the Father. He came with all authority, but he did not come with all power. That's why the water baptism of the Spirit of, with baptism, the Spirit of God came upon him and clothed him with power. What does that tell us? Authority is released in the commission. Power is released in the encounter. The authority you release is according to the measure of authority you're under. So what he means by that is you can't expect to have authority if you haven't submitted to the authority of heaven. And we do that in obedience. So authority you release is according to the measure of authority you're under. The enemy is always looking for authority. He has power, but he has no authority. He, takes, he talks until he can get somebody with authority to agree with him, and that's what empowers him. So then he gets your authority. He has no authority until you listen to him. Believe the enemy, empower the liar. I, that's just what happens is he looks for agreement. And with agreement, then he gets the authority that he doesn't have in your life because you come into agreement. How can two walk together unless they agree? Um, so way too much. I tried to just give you too much. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. I'm sorry. But uh, in two weeks, not Stuart next week, yeah, Stuart next week, Dave the following week, three weeks, I have a list of all of the spirits. I looked at all the spirits in the Word of God, and, and we're going to go down through them. I'm going to talk about uh, what, what door and window gets open to those, uh, what, what window gets open to invite that spirit in. Um, it's pretty powerful. And and so, uh, you know, if you're not comfortable with it, just skip that week. But I think it's going to be life-changing. So, Father, I pray you bless my friends. I pray that this word would be alive to them, be powerful, and that it would not be snatched away uh, by the enemy as they leave here. Would you bless them in Jesus' name? Amen.